Now remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from John 5. I'll start in verse 30. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in His light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father Himself who sent me has testified of me You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. God, we need your help to understand and to believe and to do your word. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You can keep your Bibles open or handy. We'll be in John 5. We'll be turning a little bit here and there. We'll consider the last part of John 5, but I am going to break this up into two sermons. There's a lot of rich stuff here, so we'll really just look at the first point today. Authors Robert Bowman and Ed Komaszewski make an insightful observation in their 2007 book, Putting Jesus in His Place. They write, Interpretations of Jesus are fraught with bias, 
He's a powerful figure whom people want on their sides. And they're willing to recreate him in their image to enlist support. Animal rights activists imagine a vegetarian Jesus. New Agers make him an example of finding the God within. And radical feminists strip him of divinity so that Christianity doesn't appear sexist. It's hard to escape the feeling that our culture has taken Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? And changed it to, who do you want me to be? These words from these two authors are as alarming as they are accurate. And they compel us to look at ourselves, to look inward, and to see where we are doing this or where we have done this. Are we interested in knowing who Jesus actually is? Have we created a Jesus in our own image? Do you want to know where your understanding of Jesus is off? Where it's missing the mark? Where it's fraught with bias and wrong assumptions? The Apostle John wasn't interested in who his readers thought Jesus was or who they hoped he might be. John is interested in one thing, making sure that his readers behold the Son of God for who He actually is. John's not concerned with who Jesus is to me or who Jesus is to you apart from a grounding of that knowledge in Scripture. He's concerned with presenting a solid, unshakable case or defense of who Jesus really is. Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He is 100% God and 100% human. He is the eternal Word made flesh. And today and next week as we consider this important paragraph, long paragraph at the end of John 5, we will hear four witnesses, four testimonies to the identity of Jesus, four witnesses of the Word. And as we consider this passage, we should not imagine that Jesus is on trial. There are overtones of a trial here, as we will see. But He's not on trial and we're not the jury. That's not how this works. No, Jesus doesn't need to defend Himself. We need to defend ourselves. He doesn't need to defend Himself. And so these witnesses are not witnesses for the defense. Jesus never has to defend Himself to anyone. So He's not on trial. Nevertheless, Jesus does offer the testimony of these credible witnesses. Testimonies to His identity as God in the flesh. And what we'll see really is He's not on trial, but His opponents are on on trial. The world is on trial. The witnesses have spoken. Will we make the right decision? Will we respond appropriately? according to the truth that is. 
So with your Bibles open, join me in, in John 5. And before we look at the passage that I read this morning, we need to back up, especially since we haven't been in John for three or four weeks. We need to make sure we know where we are in the story. Up in verse 18, the Jewish leaders indict Jesus. They accuse Him in verse 18 of being a Sabbath breaker and a blasphemer. And you'll remember that this comes right after Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. The man who had been sick, lame, unable to walk for 38 years. Verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, not only because he broke the Sabbath, but also because he said that God was his Father, making him equal with God. So that's, that's the, the grounds for their indictment against him. He broke the Sabbath and he claimed to be God. Now how does Jesus respond to this indictment? He doesn't go into defense mode. In verses 19 to 29, right after this, the next 11 verses there, he goes on the offense. The Jews were offended by his words and actions before verse 18. They're likely to come unglued at his claims in verses 19 to 29. In those verses, he makes eight claims about his divinity, his divine identity. He declares, I am equal with God, the Father in nature or being. I'm equal with the Father in works. I'm equal with the Father in knowledge. I'm equal with the Father in love and power and authority and honor and truth. So Jesus doesn't go on the defense. He plays offense because He's not on trial. They are. He's not on trial by the world. The world is on trial by Jesus. Jesus is innocent and the world is guilty. So Jesus brings forth this fourfold witness against unbelief. Not just against the Jews. Not just against these unbelieving Jews. But against unbelief. You may recall that Moses, he called a double witness against Israel back in Deuteronomy 4. He called heaven and earth as a double witness against Israel's unbelief. If they they decided to disobey, then there were these witnesses against them. Deuteronomy 4, 25 and 26, Moses says, If you then act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything, doing evil in the sight of the Lord your God and provoking Him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live long upon it, but will be utterly destroyed. Some interpret this passage in John 5 as Jesus calling witnesses, knowing that He needs more than one witness, at least two or three, for Himself, for His own claims. But really the witnesses are like Moses' witnesses against The people who reject God, who reject Jesus, the Messiah. So Jesus calls four key witnesses against unbelieving Israel, not in defense of his own claims. And the four witnesses are God the Father, John the Baptist, the works of Jesus himself, and then 
finally, the Scriptures. And today we'll only consider the first witness, and then we'll come back next week and look at the rest. So, look at verse 30. Verse 30 serves as a transitional verse. In some Bible, in some translations of the English Bible, verse 30 goes with the, the last part, with 31 and on. And in some Bibles, leave it with the previous paragraph. I think it's most appropriate to keep it with verse 31 in that paragraph. It serves as a transition from what happened before to what Jesus is going to say in verses 31 to 47. In verse 30, Jesus says again, and he's reiterating this, he says again in verse 30, that he can do nothing of himself. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that he can do nothing by himself, on his own, apart from the Father. That might be how we need to translate that is by himself. I think one, uh, one or two major translations do, do translate it by himself. He can't do anything on his own, separate, detached from his Father. Everything he does is completely dependent on the Word and the will of his Father. So, verse 30 is a reiteration of the all-important verse 19. You remember verse 19? You probably don't. It's been a month or two. But you remember in verse 19 how important that was in understanding the relationship between father and the Father and the Son. It says, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself. Or better, the Son can do nothing by Himself, on His own. But only what He sees the Father do. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does in like manner. So that's verse 19. So you can see how verse 30 reiterates this submission of Jesus to the Father. It reemphasizes the unqualified commitment of Jesus to please not Himself, but the One who sent Him. And this absolute obedience of Jesus to the Father guarantees that everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does, is completely in accord with His Father's good and perfect will. Verse 30 establishes a vital theological point. And that, that theological point is this. The Son does not seek His own will. He seeks the will of the Father who sent Him. The Son can do nothing by Himself. He would do nothing by Himself either. And this is true as we see in verse 31. Even when the Son bears witness. If I bear witness by myself, apart from the Father, on my own authority that doesn't rest on my Father's authority, that's disconnected from my Father's authority, if I bear witness by myself, my witness would not be true, is what he's saying here. Now at first glance, when you're reading this verse, it might appear that Jesus is saying that His own witness to His identity you know, all these claims that he just made are, may not be true. 
Well, that's obviously not right. That, that's, that would be the wrong way to read this verse. He's not saying that his own testimony about himself is false or unreliable. He's not saying that his claims to be God are untrue. That's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying. It's an important misunderstanding that the Pharisees will later make. See, that's what we see in chapter 8. If you flip over to chapter 8 and look at verse 13, John 8, 13, the Pharisees therefore said to Jesus, you bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. You see how the Pharisees are are using Jesus' words from John 5 against Him, really twisting them up and misapplying them. But notice Jesus' response in the next verse, John 8, 14. Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. So here Jesus clarifies, it might seem like a contradiction. Is His witness not true or is is it true? Well, of course it's true. And Jesus makes that clear here in John chapter 8. Of course, my witness is true. But what he's saying back in John 5 is that if it were on my own, if it were not dependent on the Father's will and connected in that way, then it wouldn't be. Because my authority is not my own. I do my Father's will. Pharisees misunderstood what Jesus meant. And they misapplied what He meant when they responded to Him. So, what does Jesus mean in verse 31? It means that if His testimony were not grounded or founded on God the Father's words and will, if his testimony about himself were to go beyond what the Father has given him to say, or if it were to fall short of what the Father has given him to say, then it would not be true testimony. The claims of God's Son would be false if they were only the testimony of the Son and not also the testimony of the Father. And how could it be otherwise? Jesus has already made this clear. He's already said that all He says and does, and this includes His witness to His own identity, everything He says and does is nothing other than a reflection of His perfect obedience to the Father. He says what the Father tells Him to say. He does what the Father tells Him to do. In fact, He only says and does what He sees the Father saying and doing. Remember verse 19. So all of this sets the stage for understanding what Jesus says in verse 32. The witness that Jesus offers, the claims that the Son makes about Himself in verses 19 to 29 are not simply His own testimony. It is also the testimony Jesus says of another It is the testimony of His Father. Look at verse 32. There is another, capital A, another, who bears witness of Me. And I know that the witness which He witnesses of Me is true. In light of the preceding verses, this another must be the Father. The Father's testimony about Jesus is true, Jesus says. 
But what is that testimony? What's he talking about? When was this testimony given? How was it given? What's the testimony of the Father that Jesus is talking about here? Well, Jesus, does, he, he's not talking about a testimony or a witness from the Father that is outside of Himself, that's external. He's not talking about a testimony that the Father gives for the sake of the opponents of Jesus. No, the Father who testifies here does so for the sake of Jesus. It's a personal testimony that Jesus perceives internally. Look down at verse 37. Jesus says, And the Father Himself who sent Me has testified concerning Me. He says it again. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. Do You see in verse 37 the personal nature of the Father's witness to the Son. The Father's testimony is in Jesus. It's inside Him. This is evidence that Jesus is not on trial. He's not offering witnesses to defend Himself. The first witness He offers is a witness that can only be perceived spiritually by those who have faith in God, who know God, and who can see the things of God. Because they can't see it. They don't know it. They can't hear it. They don't perceive it because they don't perceive spiritual things. The testimony of the Father can only be heard and seen by God's children, by those who have been born of God. The divine testimony that Jesus enjoyed is something that you can enjoy as well. The divine testimony that was given to Jesus, that was inside Jesus is also inside of you. To see this, turn with me to 1 John 5. We're going to look at 1 John 5, verses 9 and 10. The same author of John's Gospel writes this epistle. And in 1 John 5, 9 and 10, it says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God that He has testified concerning His Son. Verse 10, the key verse. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness, the testimony, in Himself. I'm going to stop there in the middle of verse 10. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in Himself. This is one of those places where it's really important to have or to, to at least be looking at a translation that's, very, that's fairly formal or literal. Some of the translations don't say in himself here. They try to, it's a little bit awkward, so they try to uh, round off the edges. If you, if you believe in the Son of God, you have the testimony inside of you. And what testimony is Jesus talking about? The answer is verse, in verse 9. The testimony of God the Father. The testimony that God the Father has testified concerning His Son. So whoever believes in the Son has this testimony, this witness, the witness of the Father in Himself, the text says. 
what John is referring to here in 1 John 5.10 is what is referred to as the inward testimony of the Spirit. He's describing the internal, personal witness of the Spirit in the heart of every believer. When God makes you His child, He gives you an inward realization of the Holy Spirit's presence and work in you. In Romans 8, 14-16, Paul says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You are like your brother Jesus. You are a son of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And now listen to verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Besides Scripture, the inward testimony of the Spirit is the most important evidence that you have that God is real and that you are His child. The Christian faith is true. The external testimony of the Holy Scriptures, which are outside of you, and the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit inside of you are all the evidence that you need to prove that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. As Hebrews 11 says, the faith chapter. What else could you possibly need if you have the Word of God coming in through your ears and eyes and the Spirit of God bearing witness to your spirit telling you that you are a child of God. If you've got this, you don't need philosophical arguments or evidence or science, miracles, or anything else. You know that Jesus is real and that He is risen from the dead because you know Him. Because His Spirit is living in you and bearing witness to you that Jesus is the Son of God. You know the Father exists because the same Spirit is living in you and compelling you to cry out, Abba, Father, just like your Lord. Just as your Lord did. The reason you believe in God is not because of the ontological argument for God's existence or the cosmological argument for God's existence or the teleological argument for God's existence. You don't believe in God because you read a book that explained how science and faith are reconcilable. Those are all fine things. The philosophical and scientific arguments might confirm your Christian faith, but they don't establish it. Your faith is based on the Word of God, and it is generated by the Spirit of God who lives in your heart and who bears testimony to your spirit concerning the Son of God. The Spirit is in you, inside of you, giving you the same testimony that God gave to Jesus. Listen to Galatians 4.6. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, 
Abba, Father. Now, I don't want you to ever doubt that this is true. This is where it starts. This is not where it ends after a bunch of other evidence and argumentation. This is where it starts. Never doubt that God's Word is not merely a human word, but the Word of God. Never doubt that God lives in you and personally bears witness to your spirit. Children, someday, some of you might go to college. Some of you are in college now. And some of your professors may try to tell you that you can't prove God's existence. You can't prove that your Christian faith is real, is true. Or maybe some of your friends will tell you the same thing. Maybe some of your friends already tell you the same kind of thing. They have arguments for why your faith in Christ cannot stand up to the historical evidence or the genealogical evidence or the biological evidence or the philosophical reasoning. They try to tell you that you believe in something that can't be proved. So you might as well believe in any kind of myth or fantasy. When you find yourself in this situation, remember Paul's words in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see how Paul says you start with Christ. And remember that Paul what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. When a person's thoughts are not captive to obey Christ, then that person becomes captive to hollow and deceptive philosophies. So never doubt the internal witness of the living God in your spirit. When someone tries to tell you that Jesus is not God's Son or that God does not exist or that Jesus is not really alive, He's still dead, you don't need to respond with sophisticated philosophical arguments. You can just say, but I know Him. I know Jesus. He is in me and I am in Him. I know God and He bears witness to my spirit about the things that are in Scripture telling me that they're true. So child of God, never doubt the witness of God in you. God is testifying inside of you. Receive this testimony. Hear it. Believe it. And join it. Join the Spirit as He cries out in your heart, Abba, Father. Join the Spirit as He testifies that Jesus is the Son of God who took on human flesh and died on a tree in your place and bore your sins there and who rose from the dead for your salvation. Believe the Spirit as He testifies all the, about all of these claims in verses 19 to 29. Agree with the testimony of the Spirit. And this is the testimony, says 1 John 5.11. That God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. The living book in your lap and the living God in your heart are all the evidence you need. In verse 32, back to John 5, 
Jesus says that he knows that his father's testimony is true. He knows this. That's his starting place. But the unbelieving Jews know nothing of the father's testimony. They can't perceive it. In verses 37 and 38, we see into the souls of these unbelieving Jews. So turn back to John 5 if you're not there, and let's look at the indictments that Jesus levels against his hearers in verses 37 and 38. So we're still in the first point, the first witness, the witness of God the Father. The unbelieving Jews cannot understand the Father's testimony about his Son. First, because it says, he says, they cannot hear God. They don't hear the voice of God. And second, because they cannot see God. Get that from the last part of verse 37. Let's look at those two one at a time. First, Jesus says in verse 37 that they have never heard God's voice at any time. At no point in their lives have they ever heard the voice of God. Now, this seems incredible. This is supposed to strike us because the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus is addressing, really, this could apply to most Jews that Jesus would have been interacting with, were immersed in the Scriptures. They read them and marked them and sang them and prayed them and memorized them and copied them and taught them. The voice of God in Scripture was their vocation what they did every day they trafficked in the truth of God's word day in and day out of course they heard the voice of God but Jesus says that at no time have they ever actually heard the word of God how could this happen how could this be well it does happen and it happens all the time it's possible to traffic in unlived truth. You can be at church every Sunday and expose yourself regularly to God's Word without knowing God or actually hearing His voice. It's not enough to read Scripture with your eyeballs or with your eardrums. You've got to hear God's voice. Anyone can read Scripture, but only those with faith in Christ can hear the voice of God when they read Scripture. Back in John 3, John said that Jesus speaks the words of God. When Jesus speaks, those are the words of God coming out of His mouth every time. John 3.34, For He whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Jesus speaks God's words, and yet the Jews do not hear the voice of God when Jesus speaks. Jesus is speaking to them, and He's speaking the words of God to them, but they don't hear. They can't hear. They're hearing the words of God, but they're not hearing the voice of God. The second indictment against the Jews at the end of verse 37 is that they have never seen God's form. Now, not many Israelites had ever seen God's form, right? Jacob and Moses saw manifestations of God, but it was a rare thing to get a glimpse of God's form. 
But the main point that Jesus is making here is sort of an ironic point. It's that these Jews in John 5 are looking right at the form of God. Jesus is God's form right in front of them. And yet they cannot see God in Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But they don't see the Father when they see Jesus. Those without faith cannot see God in the person of Jesus. These Jews, you must remember, were covenant members in good standing. They weren't sinners on the outside. They were members of the church on the inside. Church goers. Synagogue goers. Temple goers. They did family devotions. They knew their Bibles. But in verse 38, Jesus tells them, you do not have His Word abiding in you. God's Word abiding in you. Because you do not believe Him whom He sent. So how is it possible for people to traffic in unlived truth without being changed by it? There are two reasons for this. And they're right there in verse 38. God's Word is not abiding in them. And God's Son is not the object of their faith. God's Word is not abiding, living in them. And God's Son is not the one that they have put their faith in. Later in John's Gospel, Jesus says, if you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, you will ask for what you want, and it shall be done for you. I want you to live with Me. I want My words to live in you and make their home inside of you, Jesus says. A treasure trove of blessings awaits those who abide in Christ and who let the words of Christ dwell in them richly. When God's Word is living in you, when God's words are living in you, they will transform you They will transform the way you think, the way you talk, the way you do business, the way you respond to insults, the way you respond to people when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for the sake of Christ. It will change everything. It will transform your whole being inside and out. Heart, soul, mind, and body. Without faith in Christ, it's impossible to hear the voice of God. Without faith, it's impossible to see God with what Paul calls in Ephesians 1, the eyes of our heart. But with faith, with faith in Christ, you can hear God and you can see God in the person of Jesus. And so when you see Jesus, you see God. When you hear His words, you hear the words of God when God's spirit bears witness to your spirit and God's word is abiding in your heart the result is that you can hear God's voice in scripture you will hear his voice in scripture and that will be the reason in your own mind why you know that the unbeliever doesn't understand because he does not have God's word or God's spirit in him 
God's Word is not living in him. God's Spirit is not testifying to his Spirit. And that will be the reason that you at least give to yourself, not because you, there's some historical or philosophical or scientific argument. When the words of Christ are making their home in you, when the Spirit of the living God is writing Himself on the tablets of your heart, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3, the result is that you can hear Scripture for what it is. The voice of the living God. And then by the power of God living in you, you will be known as a person who traffics in lived out truth. That's the difference. And so, don't be a member of the covenant who traffics in unlived truth. Be a member of the covenant, a member of Christ's body, a member of the church who knows Jesus and hears His voice and then who therefore traffics in lived out truth. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Thank You, Father, for the witnesses, the testimonies that You give us to enable us to see You and to hear You and to believe in Your Son, Jesus Christ. To believe in who He really is as the God-man who died for us and who reigns at Your right hand. Thank You for opening our hearts so that we can see and believe these testimonies and interpret them rightly. But also help us to continue chipping away at our biases and our false assumptions about Jesus. Guard us, keep us from creating a Jesus in our own image. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.